In the past, I would have quit. I didn't understand that you just keep putting one foot in front of the other. That's why I think it's good it took me this long to get in because now I feel like I've gotten pretty good at staying in the moment. That was Joanna Ford, and this is episode 98 of the Inspired Souls podcast. Hi, I'm Carolyn, and I'm a roadrunner. And I'm Kim, and I'm a trail runner. Welcome to our podcast, where we bring the communities of trail and road running together and explore the parallels between running and life. Today we are talking with Joanna Ford, a 37-year-old trail ultra runner from Calgary, Alberta. On July 15, she finished sixth female at Hard Rock 100 Endurance Run. She was second Canadian female behind Stephanie Case and ran in a women's field that also included Courtney DeWalter, Darcy PQ, Megan Hitz, and Maggie Guterall. We couldn't wait to talk to Joanna about her race, as well as learn more about her personal running story. In this episode, we discuss how Joanna prepared for Hard Rock, including the nine years it took her to gain entrance in the lottery. Hard Rock is a bucket list race for many runners and requires that one qualify and enter a lottery for the chance to tow the line each year. It is a 102.5 mile run with 33,197 feet of ascent and descent for a total elevation change of 66,394 feet with an average elevation of over 11,000 feet. The run starts and ends in Silverton, Colorado and travels through the towns of Telluride, Oray and the ghost town of Sherman, crossing 13 major passes in the 12 to 13,000 foot range. Entrance must travel above 12,000 feet of elevation a total of 13 times, with the highest point on the course being the 14,048-foot summit of Handy's Peak. We talk about all the things that make Hard Rock the iconic race that it is. The elevation, the unpredictable weather, the punishing terrain, and the inevitable stomach issues that come with running so high. We also talk about Joanna's crew, her pacers, and her favorite experiences during the race. Joanna has a love for mountain peaks, big climbs, and fast downhill running. She even managed to secure the Strava crown for the descent down Grand Pass during the race. We know you will be inspired by her endless energy and her stories. So Joanna, we're so happy to host you on the Inspired Souls podcast today. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm really, really excited to hear about all the things, all the details of your hard rock race experience. But I think um, it would be really great to start out with you just telling us a little bit about yourself, where you live, what you do. Why don't you help paint us and our listeners a bit of a picture of who you are? Um, So I live in Calgary, which is just east of the Rocky Mountains. What I do for work is I manage a fitness facility. So My job is entirely focused around physical activity, which makes it very easy for me to do all the things that runners need to do, like prehab and rehab and strength training, all that good stuff. Um, In terms of running, I've always wanted to be a runner, basically, since I was a child and I first heard about Terry Fox. So um, it's kind of been a lifelong thing. Um, But when I was younger, I just didn't have the discipline to actually like train for running. (laughs) So it wasn't until I reached my 20s when I was consistent with it. And I started out on the roads like most people. Um, But the advantage of being in Calgary is that the the trails are right there. So eventually I think everyone gets called out to the trails. And (laughs) once you're on them, it's really, really hard to go back to roads. 
When did you start to venture out into the trails? Um, so back in 2010, I ran uh, the Boston Marathon. It was my third marathon and I came out of it with a stress fracture in my foot. And then I recovered from that for a while. And I remember my first long run back, I was out with a group of trail runners. I wasn't a trail runner out yet, but I was just out with them. And we went out for this run and it was way longer than advertised. And I realized (laughs) that I was like more resilient than I thought I was because of the stress fracture. I was really questioning if I should even be running long distances and maybe that I should be sticking to the short Mm -hmm. stuff. Um, But that was like really eye-opening for me going out that day. And that's kind of the run that I credit for my trail running. And I was really lucky at the time I didn't have my license. And there was a guy who lived close to me who led the trail running group. And he would carpool me to and from the trails like every single group runs. So I was, yeah, I was super lucky to get that help and to have a group that would just kind of show me the ropes for where it's at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really interesting as a road runner, right? Um, road running is hard on the body, isn't it? And I've heard a version of your story many times in the past, I would say. Kim, that's very much your story, yeah. isn't it? Like I went onto the yeah. trails and yeah. I loved it. It's beautiful. The people are friendly and it's gentler on my body. Yeah. So was it kind of like you never looked back after that or did you keep one foot in the road running world and, and the other foot in the trail running world for a while? I was a full convert okay. and I also had a dog. So it was really nice to be able to run with her and just have her kind of rip around. It was like, I always liked the idea of running because of Terry Fox, but I was always in pain, you know, from Mm -hmm. running. It always made me sore. And so I found it really hard to progress. And then on trails, I was pretty much never in pain and always having fun. So it's a no brainer. Mm -hmm. And you said you went longer or you, you, you surprised yourself at how long you could go and that the body held up. So talk to me about that piece as like a trail curious person. <laughs> I'm not day? saying I've never what run day? trails. Like I have run on trails before. I have like never done a trail race or anything. Um, but you know, even today out of my run, I'm like, Oh, my, you know, my foot kind of hurts and I'm a little sore from yesterday. And like, do you feel like that's carried over? Like, yeah, it's just so much gentler on my body. I don't get as sore. I don't get the stress fractures. Like that's still mm-hmm. true as true today as it was in 2010. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. I can, if, as long as I eat enough food and hydrate, I feel like I could do unlimited activity on the trail. <laughs> now I know that's not the case for everybody, but Um, because you're also like varying your pace and you're hiking the uphills and stuff. Mm -hmm. I find Mm -hmm. volume is really, really easy to do without getting hurt. But the caveat there is the first two years of trail running, I had a lot of shin pain and calf issues. So um, it's not like all, (laughs) it's not all rainbows and butterflies, right? (laughs) Well, and trail running in this area always includes vertical, right? Like you can't just go for a flat trail run very easily. And so, yeah, your calves are going to have to break into that. And and both up and down, the shin's going down too, right? Exactly. But I think like I always caution people and like, yeah, the first year or two, you're probably going to have some lower leg issues and maybe mm-hmm. some like patellar femoral issues mm-hmm. from the downhills. Mm-hmm. But if you can work through that, then 
I think most people are really successful after the first couple of years. So it's kind of cool in that regard. The roads, I, I don't know, I haven't gone back. I've ran several marathons since, but not trained for them. I've just done them as like random races. <laughs> um, so I don't know if training, I think I would probably get hurt if I trained for a marathon on the roads. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you got into trails after having a background in marathons on the roads. When did the ultra thing start happening? Like, did you right away start finding yourself going more than the 42K on trails? Or did that take some time also to evolve? Yeah, so the group I was with, they were all ultra runners. And I think this is what happens is if you, if you get out with a trail group, chances are they're ultra runners and the peer pressure is real. So <laughs> I like tried to ease into it. I, my first trail race was 25K. Um, but yeah, within one year of trail running, I was um, preparing for a 50 mile ultra. So I think that's really typical in the mm-hmm. trail community. And the ultra runners I was with, they'd just say like, I'd be like, oh, what's your favorite part? And they're like, oh, when the sun rises the next day yes. after you've been yes. running all night. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So where, okay, so you, you by default found yourself going longer and we're here to really spend a good chunk of this podcast talking about a hundred mile race, but where did you find your actual strengths lied as you started to explore trails? Like, were you actually quite a kick-ass 25k runner or did you find you naturally found you excelled at the longer distances, the longer you went initially? Um, yeah, well, I mean, I did win that 25K race, so that was, like, pretty cool. Um, But there weren't a lot of people in it. (laughs) But, um, yeah, I I think I've been good at, like, six hours, kind of the six to 12-hour range. I seem to pass people, you know, around, like, four hours into a race just from the pacing perspective. And I think initially... Uh, because I still had some leg speed when I started trail running that I was a bit better shorter. Um, but now that I've been running trails so long and I have no leg speed really at all, um, <laughs> I tend to be better at the longer stuff. You've been called the vert queen and I know I've personally seen you out on the trails just rocking up those those climbs. So do you do you like doing lots of vert and climbing lots or is it something that you do because you have to? Oh, I, I love climbing. It's like, I feel very awkward on flat. Actually, I feel kind of like an elephant <laughs> when I'm on flat ground <laughs> and I don't feel very efficient, but yeah, I really enjoy going up and downhill and yeah, that just, it just brings me a lot of joy when I can just have even repeats, like I've done nine repeats on Prairie Mountain before, and that was probably oh too God. many. But oh my god. Okay. Yeah, like, what, what does that mean? I don't know what that means. <laughs> okay, so Prairie Mountain is a on my watch 3.38 kilometer climb to the flag. Um and it's what between just over 600 700 meters? 700 Seven, meters. 700 meters. Depending on which watch you're looking at. <laughs> yeah, so which it averages what about 20% grade over the course of the climb and then yeah, depending do you go down the back side or you come down the front side? Well, no, for repeats, I just do up and down. So like that day I was trying to get 10,000 meters of vert. 
Um, but then after nine, there was like a blizzard that came in. And so the <laughs> footing got really slippery. Um, yeah, but that that's my record. I keep saying that I want to have a 10,000 meters of vert in like less than 24 hours of up and down. I think it's cheating if you take a gondola down. So yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. that's a goal. Yeah. Oh, that's <laughs> I'm glad you agree. Okay. I, I am just now redefining what I thought was awesome on Prairie Mountain. I, think <laughs> I have to work a little harder there. So um, I guess it's good that you enjoy the climbing um, because the race you just did, Hard Rock is like, what, over 30,000 feet and it hits 14,000 um, at Handy's Peak, correct? I think that's, that's right. Um, yeah. yeah, it goes really high. So if you don't actually love doing those kind of climbs and seeing the views at the top, it could make it into a really hard race. So without further ado, let's dive in to talk a little bit more about hard rock. So as we mentioned in our intro, you completely rocked the race. Uh, second Canadian, sixth female across the finish line and consistently moved your way up the field um, despite having some challenges during the race, as everybody always does um, during these ultras. So my goodness, where do we start? Let's start a little bit with your journey to actually getting into Hard Rock. When did you decide you even wanted to do this race? And how long did it take you to uh, qualify and get in? Um, so I think I wanted to do it from the first time I heard about it. So probably 2012-ish. I ran my first 100 miler in 2013, which was it's Pine de Palm um, in Oregon, and that was a qualifier for Hard Rock. So I didn't expect to get in that first year, but I thought I should just get the get the ball rolling. Um, and then from there, I was thinking maybe like five to seven years worth of applying to get started um, or to get in. So how it works is you have to qualify every second year, and there's limited number of races which can qualify you for the race um and in canada there's actually only one race that qualifies you the fat dog 120 okay yep which i'm doing in eight days Yay. Anyways, <laughs> go ahead <laughs> yeah so like it's it's kind of challenging because there's limited races you can uh use to work towards hard rock so i i started in 2013 and then i finally got in this year so it's a nine-year journey but you know, when I was in this year, I realized that there's tons of people there who were 10 or more years waiting. So my story is not atypical. It's, mm. you know, lots of people waiting that long. And I think I did need several hundreds under my belt to kind of learn um, how to run a hundred miler, how to problem solve. And, mm. and then Hard Rock uh, is like a graduate level course, hundred miler. It's very, it's so challenging. So like I've done like Fat Dog has 10,000 meters of climbing in it as well. Um, so you might think it's kind of similar, but it doesn't have the altitude factor. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. also that 10,000 meters is spread out over 120 miles. So you do have more flatter sections. So yeah, I thought maybe the experience would be similar to Fat Dog, but I, I found the course like by far the most challenging that I've run. So yeah, it's okay. pretty cool. So you've talked about, yeah, it's, it's very difficult to get into. I assume because of that, it's it's something that people really, it, it's quite sought after, right? It's like yes. prestigious. Uh, Western yes. States, Hard Rock, right? These are the, the really popular ones. Where is it located? So it's in Southwest Colorado in the San Juan Mountains. 
So you run through four little towns, uh, well, three towns and then one that you can run, run beside. And it starts and finishes in Silverton, Colorado, which has exactly one paved street and then a couple gra- gravel roads. <laughs> so, very small. And then the average elevation is over 11,000 feet altitude. And then it gets up to 14,000. So that gives you an idea of that's way higher than anything in Alberta. So Absolutely. And what's the lowest yeah. point on the course? That would be Ure. And I think it's like 7,800 feet. So still okay. quite high. Wow, that's yeah. that's very high. Yeah. How do you train for something like that when you don't really have those exact conditions? Like, because the elevation, I know you've got some elevation in, in Calgary, but not to that extent, right? And and that really impacts people if they haven't kind of mm-hmm. adapted to elevation. So what did you do to prepare? Uh, it was super challenging, especially because we had so much snow this year. Mm-hmm. So normally I would have tried to get up high. Like normally we could get up to maybe 8,000 feet, but we could not this year because of the snow level. So I went down to Colorado on July 2nd, so two weeks before the race, and just mm-hmm. hung out up high for those two weeks. Um, I wasn't scientific about it, and maybe I should have been, but I just I just camped I spent every night just in my tent except for one in a hotel and just went up some mountains and ran around and it was great. It was a really fun vacation. Okay. So you're not like sleeping in a altitude tent at home or anything like that. Like I know some people really take it seriously. I would, I think if I enter the race again, because it's not realistic for me to go to Colorado for three weeks, like every time I want to run this race and it is really important to acclimate. So yeah, if I did it again, I think I would figure out the altitude tent thing and do like more look into the science behind it. Um, but thankfully this time I just took vacation and made like a big adventure. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious, did you think that the two weeks was the right amount of time? Because there's that period of time where you're actually performing worse when you first Mm -hmm. go at altitude. Um, was the cost benefit, like you were already tapering. I'm just wondering, did you feel acclimated appropriately at the time of the race or do you think you could have used a little bit longer I'm just curious like in a perfect yeah in a perfect world I would have gone a month yeah yeah so because I wasn't because it was two weeks before the race I wasn't able to do like any big mountain days Mm -hmm. at altitude Mm -hmm. so I kept my days to like four hours or less And the problem with that is I wasn't really able to test out my hydration and nutrition Mm -hmm. properly Mm -hmm. at altitude. Um, So yeah, that was, you could see like the locals in Colorado who are used to the altitude, like they just move so much better and everyone was vomiting and struggling and stuff like that. But I I felt like they had an advantage and I was like, ah, I've never felt like a lowlander before, but (laughs) I was definitely a lowlander. Well, you can be glad you're not from Winnipeg. (laughs) (laughs) It's just about sea level there. Yeah. Yeah, I considered myself so lucky when I moved to Calgary and my house sits at a thousand, 1100 meters. Then I was like, oh, I'm living at elevation now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So you got yourself there. You did your, your, um, altitude training as best you could. What was your overall 
strategy going into the race? What was your execution plan? So I've done one race at altitude previously in Utah, and I got really sick really early on because I ate bacon um, and like foods that contained fat in addition to regular sugar. Um, and so I, I learned from that, that if you're at altitude, you really can't digest fat at all. So my strategy was to go in and only have carbs, sugar, period. And then maybe when I was lower down, like in Ure or some of the lower valleys, then I could try eating real food. So that was really important. Um, and then keeping the, the intensity really low. So like the higher you work, right, the less you can digest. So really trying to take like really small steps, making sure my legs aren't burning, making sure my heart rate's not too elevated. And besides that, like I knew that digestion was going to be my number one problem. And then the other problem is just being in the correct like mental headspace and being focused and not feeling sorry for yourself. Um, And for that, I just drew on um, like previous experience. And then I, my dog had just died like a a month prior suddenly. And she, she was like this bundle of joy that just did everything a hundred percent all the time. And so I always called her like full send Dobby. So I just remember like full send Joanna, full send, like all the time, just do like the best you can at this time. Um, yeah, so those were my strategies, and it's pretty pretty happy to go in with that. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you went in as prepared as you could be, like amazing preparation. Did you train yourself for this, or do you have a coach? Like, I'm just curious about uh, you know your preparation on that front. Yeah, no, I train myself. I have worked with coaches nice. in the past, but I'm not very coachable. So, <laughs> what I... do you mean by that? Mean? <laughs> Tell me more. Yeah, like I like to adventure and have fun, and I'm yeah. not always the most focused on the goal. From a perspective of like, I wasn't focused on time for this, right? Like I just, I don't, I didn't care (laughs) that much. Um, So I I think it can be hard to coach someone when they're like, I just want to feel good and be happy all the time. So yes. Which translates into a good race result in the end. If you can feel good (laughs) and be happy throughout the whole race, even amidst pouring rain and the puking. (laughs) Yeah, I can tell you as a coach, I kind of wish more people would have a goal like that because it really does kind of put you into focusing on the process rather than the outcome. And really, you have to kind of be process focused to get the outcome anyway. So I don't know, I, you may be more coachable than than you think, but <laughs> yeah. it sounds like what you're doing is working for you. I was just curious about mm-hmm. whether, you know, if a coach fits into the picture at all. But um, on that note, do you lean on anyone else during the race? Like, um, who do you have crewing for you? Do you use mm. a pacer? How does that all work out for you? Yeah, so I have my husband, Matt, crewing for me at pretty much all my races. And he's awesome. He's like a super fan, really excited really happy to be there. This race, there was a bit of a hiccup. He missed his flight. He was supposed to come in the day before. And then he managed while I was running the race to get in on a standby flight. And he just like showed up halfway through the race. Oh, that's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. So that was really cool. Um, And then I had two friends that uh, paced 
um, paced me in the race. And so the one friend was already there and she was crewing me while Matt found his way (laughs) to find me. And uh, so at the first aid station where I saw her, she told me, she's like, Matt's going to be at the next aid station. And I kind of started crying a little bit because I couldn't believe it. Yeah, he was a day late, but that still counts. (laughs) Absolutely. That must have given you such a boost of of energy, right? To think, you know, to look look forward to, right? Even more so than if you'd known he was going to be there, right? Yeah, it was really nice. Like it was bad the night before because I really didn't sleep much before the race because I was worrying about him because I knew he was trying to make it in but I didn't know how he was going to get from the airport to Silverton because there's no one one paved road (laughs) (laughs) I'm like I'm not sure how this is going to work out but my one pacer was driving from Denver on the day of the race to pace me and so he was actually going to go through the town that Matt was flying into on his way so he managed to pick Matt up so it worked out pretty well yeah and then so my my pacers were Nikki who's a friend of mine here in Calgary and she's been trying to get into hard rock for ages um so I was really excited that she could run with me and kind of have that hard rock experience and then the other pacer was um I hadn't met him until the run day, but he is like a professional pacer. It's kind of funny. He's paced people at Hurt and oh, other wow. races. Yeah. Oh, and he's cool. a friend of a friend. Yeah. So he was great. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Well, I must say, um, <laughs> I don't think I've seen a pacer more excited with a bigger smile on some of the pictures <laughs> on social media that Nikki posted. She was just radiant so excited to be out there with you I'm sure her energy must have really buoyed you up uh Nikki is great and Nikki's been hugely influential on me she's the one who actually encouraged me to get into ultras like in the first place when I was just building up to like 50ks and she's like you can do a 50 mile like no problem you know like why why are you waiting like just go do it So she she's done that's the, the peer tw- pressure yeah. you were talking about <laughs> yeah. before, yeah. right? Yeah, Nikki's <laughs> like all in all the time. <laughs> I may have a friend yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everyone <laughs> needs a Nikki in their life. <laughs> yeah. So just curious. Just so we, so that's probably really good preparation for Nikki, I would think, right? So she's had a little glimpse. She's been on the course. She's you know been in that in that crewing pacing seat. Um, so when she you know when she eventually gets there, she'll sort of have a better maybe a better idea of of what she needs. Uh, had you ever been a pacer? Uh, oh man, at, at Hard I have, Rock, I have terrible pacing stories. Oh <laughs> my. <laughs> I am never hire me as a pacer. So I tried to pace Dave Proctor across Alberta and fell apart because Dave's a machine. Um, but the, like, the I, first time? Or when uh, he did his Yeah, Alberta the first time. In a, yeah, when he did his attempt and stopped in Winnipeg, I tried to run okay. with him across Alberta and kept up for maybe 75 kilometers. So that was my first attempt at pacing. And then I attempted to pace the Calgary Marathon. And I hit a deer on the way, didn't show up. Oh, no. (laughs) And then my third pacing attempt was at a 100 miler here in Colorado. And the tracker said that my runner had DNF'd. So I went for my own hike and then out for dinner and then realized that she was still running and came back. Oh, my God. Oh, okay. (laughs) It's actually interesting you mentioned that because... 
I actually thought you DNF'd yourself during the race because there was a period of time your tracker went dead and it showed you like off the course somewhere. And I was like, what? No. The last photo I just saw of Joanna, she was like two thumbs up in the rain, ready to go. How could she have DNF'd? But yeah, these things can sometimes happen when um, you're in a really remote area with very poor um, cell service and data. Um, But oh, that's too bad yeah. for the guy or the person you were supposed to be pacing. So, okay, <laughs> let's let's move into a bit more of a play-by-play of your experience during this race. Another one of those stories of execution where you just seem to get maybe not feel stronger and stronger, but move up the field. Um, some of that has to do with how other runners are doing in their race, of course. But let's let's kind of maybe break it into thirds. So the first third, how are you feeling? Were things going according to your nutrition and hydration plan? How was the weather? What was that first 33 miles like? Uh, yeah, the first third was great. Um, I felt like I paced it mostly pretty well but um there was one section going up above island lake um and up to grant swamp pass which is the second climb there is just so much media there so many people cheering you on it was it was crazy i've never been in a race with so much hype around it and i was trying to go slow but it was it's just too hard with that many people around so i kind of got out of myself and I knew when I got to the top of that pass, which is at around 13,000 feet, that I had pushed myself too hard. Mm-hmm. And so then I had to take a break from eating while I waited for my digestion to kind of ease off. And so that was, besides that, like the first section was amazing, but that was a mistake that kind of set me up for the future. Um, coming off of Grand Swamp Pass was a blast because it's a scree descent, which in Alberta, all our mountains have screes. So for me, it's like my favorite. Uh, so I just blasted down that and all the way to the aid station. And it's funny because if you look on Strava, I actually got the course records on that whole descent. I saw that. <laughs> Which made me laugh. Oh I'm like, God. oh my God. Yeah. It was just, it was, I think I was so happy to get away from the media because there's nobody on the other side. It was just empty. And it was like the only section of the course that's kind of like Alberta. So it's kind of fun to be home for, you know, 10 minutes or so. Um, and then, yeah, and then you go up. The next climb was horrific. It was so hard, but everyone was struggling. So it was really funny because everyone just like take one step and then take a breather, take another step, take a breather. It's like the Everest videos that you watch. Yes. Yes. Oh my goodness. (laughs) So I got to the top of that and then there was no one in front of me and just this amazing descent all the way down into Telluride, um, which is this is maybe like 45 kilometers into the race. And it was so amazing to just run all the switchbacks all by myself. And there was wildflowers everywhere and marmots. And I was just like on cloud nine. It was awesome. And then that's probably where you saw some pictures. Cause as I came into Telluride, it was torrential downpour, just mm. crazy. So I'm just like soaked and big smile on my face and having a blast. <laughs> Was it cold or was... Um, no, 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 there was no... I didn't even put a rain jacket on. I was just drenched, but it was warm. Um, so yeah, that's where Nikki told me that Matt was going to be at the next aid station. So then it was up and over to uh, Kroger's Canteen is the highest aid station on the course. And it's just like this little slot between cliffs. And so you kind of go straight up some scree and then straight, straight down some scree on the other side. 
So that was really exciting because I ended up being at the aid station with two other, my friends from Alberta who were also running the race, Chris Mm -hmm. and Leo. And who are, yeah, let's mention them. A shout out to the Albertans. It was so cool because we weren't running together. And then on that climb, we all converged together and arrived at the top. So that was a blast. And we did a tequila shot up there as is tradition. (laughs) And then I took off because... I'm like much more comfortable in mountain descents. And so that was great. Really good time. And then there was another storm that came in that was even like more crazy than the first one. Just the craziest rain I've ever seen. And I ended up uh, ducking into an outhouse to put my rain jacket on and use the facilities. And then when I came out, I thought I had like a piece of like gummy. I was eating gummy candies like in my throat. So I coughed. And then I just like spewed everywhere. Oh. Like I wasn't even feeling nauseous at the time, but sometimes I don't know. So yeah, that was the beginning of my vomiting. And while I was hunched over vomiting there, uh, another Canadian came down, uh, Nat from New Brunswick, who had actually been camping beside for the last couple of days. So that was really cool. And we ran together into Uray and I don't know, I was still like having a blast at that time. And that's where I got to see Matt um, I got to did a quick change of clothes and eat some warm food and picked up Nikki who would pace me for the next like 20k or so. So your definition of having a blast and mine might be a little <laughs> bit different. Um, so is it is it common to spew and throw up in these races like you're just kind of talking about it like yeah and then the next sentence was I'm having a blast and then my friend came and then we spewed some more and so like is this just something that you expect is going to happen yeah so vomiting is really common in 100 milers um sometimes like and I am particularly bad for it so I have a lot of practice (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. yeah, so it's really common. Like when Nat saw me hunched over, he's like, oh, (laughs) like it wasn't a surprise. (laughs) Um, and this race, especially because it was at altitude and you can't really digest much when you're exercising. Um, yeah, it's, it's really common at that point. I wasn't feeling particularly nauseous or bad though. So like Mm -hmm. sometimes you throw up and you actually feel better. And I was trying to be optimistic that this might be one of those times where I might just throw up once and then I get some food down and then be fine. That that is possible. Um, That's not what happened. I've never experienced that. I wish. (laughs) I just get nauseated and then dry heave. But mm, (laughs) someday I'll actually be able to like clean my system out and feel better. Yeah. Yeah. I've never heard of it that way where you're like, oh, I think I have a gummy stuck in my throat. Like it wasn't like you felt nauseous and sick and you knew it was coming. It was just like, oh, and then you're all of a sudden throwing up. Like that's just very interesting to me. Yeah. 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 Well, I think also like this is going to get us really sidetracked, but I, I had a growth in my sinus, um, which was, I went through a series of medical procedures to get it removed and it had fully blocked everything. And I think I developed like some poor breathing habits. Um, so I think a lot of the time when I'm eating while I'm running, I swallow a lot of air. Mm-hmm. So this is my theory. Cause I've vomited a lot oh, less since I had the growth removed. And so I think that some of those habits are still there, though. So, right. yeah. Hmm. Interesting. 
Okay. So you weren't feeling depleted yet at this point. And I say yet, because I don't know, I assume at some point you might. Yeah, might. <laughs> um, you picked up your pacer for the next 25K. How did that go? How was that stretch? Yeah. So it was really fun to pick up Nikki. And I was a little bit later than I would have wanted because I was hoping we'd get like this amazing sunset as we climbed because we were headed into the biggest climb on the course. Um, it was still light out, but we were headed into a canyon. And so the sunset while we were in the canyon. So we kind of missed out on that. Um, but I was feeling pretty decent for that section. And there was other runners that we knew, like just around us. So we were kind of in a group, kind of, excuse me, enjoying ourselves. Um, but as we continued to climb and climb, so this is a 1600 meter climb we were on. Um, I started to get nauseous again. And then as you alluded to, I started to dry heave Mm -hmm. and the dry heaves were really painful because nothing was coming out. And I was just like rolled over in the fetal position on the Mm -hmm. side of the trail. And yeah, that wasn't great. And I don't normally have pacers, but I thought in this race, it would be nice to have one. And, you know, it's nice to share that experience with friends. Um, but Mm -hmm. I didn't really love having her see me like in pain and you know in that like that vulnerable is like like I was kind of hoping that that wouldn't happen but it did (laughs) and at least Nikki's like she's way more experienced in ultras than I am even she does 200 mile races and stuff um so she's used to seeing that and she's kind of like pat me on the back and get going again (laughs) It's par for the course. No sympathy here. Yeah. <laughs> Let's keep going. Yeah. <laughs> and how far into the race are we at this point? Are you about halfway? Uh, yeah, we're about halfway. Okay. And we're, yeah, so the biggest climb. And then there's an aid station up near the pass there. And she encouraged me to eat like some saltine crackers. And I had some coffee. And that seemed to help a little bit. Um, and we got to the top of the pass and then I still had my downhill legs at this time. So it was great. I could run downhill and pass like everybody on the downhill, which was a blast. Um, Sounds like came, that's a theme. Of this yeah, race. <laughs> it, was, it was good. It's good till it wasn't. Um, and then <laughs> I came into the Animus Forks aid station, uh, which Matt was there. And then my next pacer was there and everyone's like, oh, wow, you look amazing because I was the fastest downhiller. But um, yeah, I was feeling pretty not great (laughs) at that point. Okay, so talk to me about just mentally. So you're you're halfway through a race and it doesn't matter if you're running like a mile or a hundred miles, right? Halfway, the race hasn't really started yet, (laughs) right? And so mentally though, how do you handle that when you're feeling the way that you are and you're only at halfway yeah so like in the past I would have quit really right okay yeah yeah I have lots of dnfs um like did not finish um and you know when I the first time I vomited I quit in that race I didn't understand that you can keep going. I didn't understand that you just keep putting one foot in front of the other and that you just break things into smaller chunks and you can continue. Um, That's why I think it's good. It took me this long to get in because now I have those experiences. And so when stuff goes sideways, I can just break it down and, and be like, you know what, like 
don't think about the finish line because that's impossible to get to the finish line, but just think about getting to the top of this hill or putting your right foot in front of the left and just focus on what you can in that moment. And I think it's a skill that you practice. So 100%. over time, yeah. yeah, exactly. So I feel like not, I feel like I've gotten pretty good at, at staying in the moment now, which is mm-hmm. awesome. Yeah. The, the, I think one of the most important lessons for an ultra runner to learn is that nothing lasts forever, right? Mm-hmm. The bad times don't last forever. The good times also don't last no. forever, but if you just keep going, <laughs> things will shift at some point. Um, That's the saying. It never always gets worse. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Exactly. You had someone mention that one before in their favorite <laughs> mantras. Oh. Yeah. Okay, so what was that moment like when you you come up on your husband? So you're feeling, we know how you've been kind of feeling up until this point. Was it the boost that you were expecting it to be? Uh, It was awesome. I mean, so he was in Uri and uh, just like giving him a big hug and seeing how excited he was. And he's just so pumped for everything I do. So yeah, it, it was really good. And I was able to like, you know, of course, I'd be a bit annoyed at the whole that we were in that situation in the first place. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, you can just kind of forget about that when you see him and like, oh, okay, it's all good now. So, right. yeah. so he's an asset to have at the race with you. And I, I asked that or comment on that because not every significant other is. (laughs) Some people actually say they prefer not to have their significant other because they're freaking out about how horrible they look or something and don't necessarily understand. But you've been, sounds like you've, you've been running for a very long time. He's used to this. Him being there is a definite plus for you, I'm hearing. Yeah, well, he so he's seen all the DNFs and also mm-hmm. how much work mm-hmm. it's taken to get here. And he's been like the biggest pusher for me to accomplish this goal. When I was at Fat Dog, which was a qualifying race, I wanted to quit and he wouldn't let me. And he's not a runner at all. And when he saw that I wanted to quit, he decided to pace me and he walked with me for 55 kilometers as oh. like a non-runner person. So... <laughs> That's amazing. That's love. Yeah. That is love. Yeah, yeah, oh my. Yeah. He's a keeper. You are He's one a keeper. very lucky yeah. woman. That's great. Thank you. Okay. So I, I'm curious. Let's re- revisit this nutrition part because, like, as you said, as long as you can keep eating and, and hydrating, the body can go for ridiculous amounts of time as long as the mind says it tells it to. So mm-hmm. you, at some point, needed to get your nutrition under control. What did what did you do? Did, did something just start working for you or what happened there? Um, yeah, eventually. So basically what happened was then I went over the highest point of the course, Handy's Peak, and I took a caffeine pill, which I find always settles my stomach to get over that section. And so I actually felt like pretty decent and was okay on the other side, but you can't take caffeine just like indefinitely. It's kind of a, a a diminishing return. So I knew when I took that one pill, like I always say there's like maybe two pills and then there's no help anymore. So I, I took that one. Um, and then unfortunately I made a really dumb mistake on the other side. I was like excited because we we're on this flat kind of downhill road and I was going to be able to run and do really well. So I took two Tums and then I follow that up by two of these chewable electrolyte replacement tabs. And that was way too much in my stomach at the same time. Mm -hmm. So then 
I just like erupted with the worst vomiting of the whole race. And unfortunately, because I lost so much fluid with that one that then I ended up walking basically the rest of the race because of that. So yeah, I really, I feel like I have two mistakes, which was taking those four pills at the same time and then pushing too, too fast up the pass early on, but it was what it was. So instead of dwelling on it, it was like, okay, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> at that point, yeah right? exactly. Like, yeah. Did you have any idea where your placing in the race was at this point? And were you aware of other competitors or were you just completely in your own experience? Um, they would tell me, I think I was in like sixth or seventh, but, um, and then Megan Hicks, uh, I think she finished fifth, like her and I mm-hmm. were leapfrogging constantly because I would pass her on every downhill and then she would pass me on every uphill. Mm-hmm. Um, but she was way more efficient on aid sta- in aid stations than I was. So yeah, I kind of had an idea, like I really wanted to catch Megan, but obviously that didn't happen. <laughs> Um, but I wasn't competitive at this point. Like at this point, it was more like damage control, like keep moving, try to eat what you can when you get into aid stations. So I started to have like chicken noodle soup. I had a little tiny bit of pumpkin pie, um, and then kind of just worked my way from there. And then I seemed to really be enjoying like coffee and stuff. So I just drank a lot of coffee and, um, just kept moving. And the good thing is I'm really practiced hiker I've done like so so much hiking so I'm quite good at just keeping a steady walking pace and it's amazing when you're not stopping uh how much time you can make just from just from walking Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. unfortunately for Chris like my pacer he didn't get to run at all but (laughs) we did have like a 50 kilometer hike and that was good (laughs) how was it being paced by a total stranger would you do it again with Chris, yeah. So he, my friend Ariel had recommended him, like they're friends, and she vouched that he was a good dude. So I kind of went into it assuming that he would be good, and he, he was great. I've had one pacer that I didn't know before. This was my only other pacer experience, actually, and they wanted me to talk the whole time. And I wasn't into that, and it was kind of a negative experience. Which, you know, that was my first 100 miler and I just wasn't mature, right? So uh, I don't really blame that on the pacer. I blame it more on myself and that I just didn't have a mature mindset. Um, But this time was great. I had told Chris beforehand that I probably wouldn't want to talk and that he would have to tell me stories and stuff. And it was fun. Like he told me all about like Formula One racing and like all this random stuff that I know nothing about. (laughs) And that was perfect. So... Yeah. Yeah. Stimulating in a different way. Yeah. Really interesting. Talk about a relationship accelerator. (laughs) Hi there. Nice to meet you. (laughs) I'm going to be like barfing a lot, but just tell me really good stories. And yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, he was really good because he also like understood how to encourage me to take care of myself in the aid stations. Because in the past I've made mistakes where when I'm in that situation, I just want to rush to the aid stations and not take care of myself. But I knew that the number one issue in, in an ultra is blisters. So I really had to like make sure that my feet and any chafing areas were taken care of. And then he was like right on that. I was, I'd given him questions to ask me beforehand and then he kept checking in and I didn't have any blister problems, which is 
unusual for me and amazing, but it's because we were proactive and focused on that. So yeah, he was great. And that's, like you mentioned, can be a deal breaker. I mean, I think it was Maggie um, that had some serious blister problems that she attributed to some of the challenges in her race. So you didn't have any. Um, My mind's going in a lot of different directions here, but I'm actually curious. It took you, I'm just looking it up here, uh, 38 hours and 17 minutes to complete the race. Did you deal with sleepiness? I'm assuming you didn't take any naps. (laughs) <laughs> all that yeah. caffeine you took in, did it, did it work? Uh, or were there some times where you started, I know I around our, definitely by hour 30, I feel like I'm nodding off a little bit sometimes yeah. or hallucinating. Was there anything like that happening for you? Uh, I didn't have any hallucinations, which I have had in the past, but I think it's because we weren't in any forests really. So normally okay. I see things when there's trees, cause you kind of like see, you can see stuff in the trees, um, like a, a fat dog, uh, it took me 45 hours and I saw all sorts of things there, but, um, this, this race, I didn't see anything. I was really tired. I remember at one point I just kind of paused and leaned on my poles and I was like, oh, I'm just so tired. And Chris is like, why would that be? I, I don't know why you would be tired. <laughs> Like, oh, thanks. <laughs> and then you kind of get to the point where you're like, oh, only like two aid stations left. And the good thing about, or bad thing about Hard Rock, depending on how you think about it, is that the aid stations are so far apart, right? So two aid stations seems like the, the finish line is right there, when actually that's like over 30 kilometers away, right? So, but for me, it right. seemed like, oh, yeah, like, just just keep walking. We're almost there. <laughs> You know, we'll be there by dinner. You did eventually get there. And, you know, even though you hiked a good portion of the last part of that race, I mean, ultras are often races of attrition and they're the people that just keep moving, (laughs) but end up doing really well. So what did it feel like to kiss the rock? Like, how did you feel coming into that finish line? It felt really good. It's rare that I finished a race still like focused no pity parties no like there I knew there was girls behind me because we'd all left at the aid station at the same time and then I still had fight in me I was like no I'm not gonna let those girls catch me I'm gonna maintain my position and so it felt really good to finish it was still having a bit of that in me and then also having had this like nine-year journey here and going through everything that happened like with my dog dying and like the sinus growth and like all the stuff in life that has happened in in the recent past. Um, it felt amazing to finally have that accomplishment. And yeah, really, it was really cool. I teared up a little bit. So, yeah, well, I would, yeah. <laughs> um, so for our listeners that don't know, there's this huge rock at the finish line of hard rock. And when um, people cross the finish line, it's the tradition to go and kiss the rock. Um, so that's what I was kind of mentioning there. And what time of the day or night was it when you finished? Like, I assume it starts in the morning. So 38 hours, like, would it have been? Yeah. No, thank no. That so that was like a major motivator. So the race started at six a.m. and I finished at eight seventeen. So it was still light out, mm-hmm. and I really did not want to go into another night because that that is just horrible. <laughs> that I probably would have slept then, um, but thankfully that did not happen. And 
on that last leg, I knew that if I just kind of, if I didn't push it, then I was chancing having to finish in the dark and I did not want that. So Well, and let's just go back to the finish results. I don't want to focus too much on this, but to put it into context, the fifth place finisher, which was Megan finished, Megan Hicks, oh, just under two hours ahead of you. But -hmm. then in the 38 hour stretch, one, two, three, four, five women finished under 39 hours. So there was a, yeah, you're right. There was a lot of people coming up behind you and, and yeah. you, um, you were still in a race, right? So, yeah. Good so you. I took that second caffeine pill on the way up. And so that like, that just get whatever was left in me was just used up on the last thousand meter climb. Uh, and then I just tried to get out of sight so that, Cause I, they didn't know that like my legs were trashed. I couldn't run downhill anymore, but they didn't know that. So I was right. like, just get, <laughs> just get up this hill and then I'll just try to get out of sight. And I think I was like maybe 20 minutes ahead of the seventh place. Yeah. I'm not sure, but we left the aid station at the same time. So, so you knew all these, these women. So did that kind of light a fire under you a little bit? Like it gave you something to kind of focus on and something to fight for with whatever you had left. I like, again, we just talked to another ultra runner that was saying that like when you're stuck kind of in no man's land and there's no one to chase and you're, you're going to hold your position, even if you like lay down and take a nap, it's not really that engaging, right? It's much more engaging to think like, oh my goodness, like I got to keep going here. So you had that kind of intel from your crew and uh, pacers maybe to say, okay, keep going. <laughs> like, yeah. you don't want to get past here. Well, they were good because they wanted me to still focus on the process even at mm-hmm. that stage. So they didn't, they didn't emphasize the ladies that much. But I mean, I have eyes. I can see them. <laughs> they were right yeah, there. Yeah, especially headlamps. Well, no, I guess in the day you wouldn't see yeah. headlamps. But yeah. 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 So, and one of them is like another girl from Canada, Dana. So we, yeah. we actually went for a run together, like back in April. So I knew her and we were like at the aid station together, like, hi, how you doing? Oh, <laughs> then I'm like, oh my God, I got to get out of here. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, you know, not to digress too much, but this is another interesting thing that Hard Rock does really nicely is it breaks down how much time is spent at each aid station and then total time spent at aid stations. Oh. And it's it's really interesting. Like the front runners, you look at Courtney DeWalter, for example, I think she spent less than 15 minutes. Like it was like 12 or 14 minutes total in the whole race in aid stations. Yeah. Like one minute, one minute, two minutes. And then you you kind of go up the field or down whichever way you want to look at it and it turns into 40 minutes an hour and Mm -hmm. and those things do add up over time so Mm -hmm. yep getting in and out we've talked about this before on the podcast is in whatever distance you're doing whether it's a marathon or an ultra marathon it can add up over time at those pit stops Absolutely. Yeah. So you mentioned that if it had have gone much longer than and the you know nighttime came and you probably would have wanted to lay down and and rest. So you finished before the sun went down. Um talk to us about then like are you on a high when you cross the finish line or are you like oh my goodness thank goodness this is over I'm going to go to bed. Like what were your energy levels like right as soon as you crossed the finish line? Um, well, I was really looking forward to a shower and a burger. So there was that. But then also our friend Leo, who I mentioned earlier, um, he mm-hmm. was still on the Leo course. Fun. And so and then 
Chris met me, the other guy from Alberta. He finished ahead of me. He was at the finish line, but he, he was ready to go home after he's like, he cheered me in and then left. But I was really excited to see Leo finish. So we kind of hung out at the end for, I want to say like a couple hours probably. But then it became clear that like he wasn't, it's going to be a while. And I was basically falling asleep sitting up. So yeah. And, and there's a place for you to get a burger right at the finish line? Yeah. Like, they, have, they had a barbecue going? Yes. Yeah, they did. Okay. And so that was really awesome. And they had showers yeah. right there as well. So, Well, Carolyn, how many people have said on the podcast that their favorite post-run indulgence is a burger? Like, they have to have totally. burgers for people who've just been out there for two days. Like, yes. On. Yes. <laughs> multiple burgers for being out there for two days. And how has your recovery been? It's been really good. So I didn't have any joint pain at all at any point in the race. So great. yeah, I was pretty excited about that because there's a local 50 mile race that I was hoping to do in August, but I didn't sign up for it before Hard Rock because I wasn't sure if I'd end up being injured. Um, so yeah, I've been really good. I had no joint soreness. I had lots of muscle soreness, um, but that's gone and I didn't even have that much swelling. So like in the past I've gotten quite swollen post event and then been peeing a lot and just felt like generally awful. But this time around, I was just like sleepy for about a week, I'd say of sleepiness And I think part of the reason why the recovery has been better is because I think I started recovering like during the race because the last, (laughs) the last section, I wasn't nauseous anymore. I was eating quesadillas and like avocado on saltines and stuff. Um, And so I I think, yeah, it's just the race is so long that I just kind of went full circle. (laughs) That is the best soundbite ever. Um, Actually. Okay. So this isn't the first time this has come up, but it's a, you're the first person to put it that way. So it was actually Elsa McDonald that talked about her recovery being better after Western States than some of her other races because she just nourished her body well during the race. And when you when you finish a race, not utterly completely depleted and in deficit it definitely helps with how fast you can recover after so yeah yeah <laughs> you I were able started to start recovering, recovering like halfway before the race was over i have to keep amazing. that in mind when i'm out there for 45 hours next week if that's yeah. <laughs> or more I'm beginning to feel very very lazy okay so uh, <laughs> is there anything that stands out as something that you learned from this race experience that you will take forward with you into other races maybe just patience like i feel like i learned that every race but I like this was the last time I was going to apply for hard rock. I was just kind of done with the whole process and ready to move on to other things. But then the running hard rock ended up being an extremely rewarding experience for me. And so I'm just so grateful that it happened when it did. And uh, it just reminded me that if you want something to just keep working for it, even if it does take, you know, nine or more years. Right. So I think that would be my biggest takeaway. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. I needed to hear that today. Thank you. I did too. I was just yeah. thinking as you were yeah. saying that, I'm like, I've been trying to run a good marathon for like years now and something always messes it up and I'm about to give up. And then I'm like, no, I'm not going to give up. That's amazing. Great yes. advice. 
So you've highlighted so many amazing moments and maybe not so amazing moments that you experienced during the race. Is there anything else that stands out in your memory, like a special moment or something that you will cherish from this experience? Probably the biggest things would just be my relationships with Nikki and Chris. Like, I feel like my friendship with Nikki was really strengthened through this experience, Mm -hmm. spending that much time together, especially in that kind of condition. And um, Chris just having met him, but I I feel like we'll be friends for a very long time Mm -hmm. going forward. And so that, I don't know, that was really special. And because I didn't have a positive pacing experience from before, it's kind of shown me that um, hanging out with people isn't all bad. So, Mm. yeah. All right. So is there anything I I kind of we we sometimes don't like asking this question cuz like you've just come off of this and and we want you to relish in the all the afterglow of an amazing race and and placement and everything. But is there something next on your radar? You mentioned that 50 miler and you hadn't signed up. Is that something that you're setting your sights on? Yeah, I am signed up. So that's Iron Legs. Uh, Iron Legs? Okay. Yeah. So I that was my first 50 miler. And this will be my fifth time running Iron Legs. It's had different courses over the years. But yeah, so it's my favorite like local event. It's in your it's backyard. Awesome. Yeah. Yes, exactly. I'm volunteering. Uh, maybe okay. I will see you. I'm going to be at the finish line entering um, times. Uh, you know what? This sounds so ridiculous. Sidebar. I've always thought that would be the coolest job as a volunteer is to sit at the finish line and just get to see all of those moments. Mm. Um, so that's what I'm going to do fire and lake. Mm. So we'll see that's if you awesome. come through when I'm sitting there. We like to finish each podcast with five rapid fire questions. Let's start out with, um, Joanna, what is your favorite running mantra? I have two. Um, so I have this rhyme I made up is I am tough. I am strong. This is where I belong running an ultra marathon, singing a song, moving along. And I will say that, (laughs) say that on repeat (laughs) over and over again. So that's why I don't normally have pacers because I'm just talking to myself. (laughs) When your race is a hundred miles, you have to have a really long mantra. (laughs) playlist when they've got that exactly. song as a mantra like awesome. yeah and you said you had two is there another one uh thank you just to practice gratitude um so that's something I've been I feel like in ultras and in life in general that if you can just uh focus on all of the good things it can just make everything so much better. So Mm. like obviously recognizing there's a lot of crap as well, but (laughs) yeah. We get to do what we do for sure. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Do you have a favorite place to run? I know you live in a beautiful place and have access to beautiful locations to run in all the time, but is there a place that stands out as a favorite? There's this route I like to run every year. I call it Tour de Noceum, and it's in Banff National Park, and I run around Noceum Peak, and it's spectacular. There's just wildflowers, waterfalls, glaciers. There's a tarn that you can swim in that's like this most beautiful blue lake you've ever seen. Um, So that's like my favorite kind of annual outing. That would be number one. 
Okay, noting this right now. <laughs> yes, rating that on my list. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> won't won't take up your space when you're out there for a solo run, but I definitely am going to check out where uh, where that is. It's All really right. good. Do you have now that you've done Hard Rock? What's your next bucket list race? So this one's hard. I've had Tour de Géant on my list for a very long time. Uh, which is basically a double hard rock <laughs> out in Italy. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. So that I would love to do that. I just need to work out logistics. I do think it's easier to get into than hard rock. Um, so that's the bonus. <laughs> There's not as many people scrambling to do a 200 mile event. <laughs> that's what I was thinking. I wasn't going to say. <laughs> I'm pretty sure sh- they did have to move to a lottery system, but I think maybe my understanding is probably just like two or three years to get in, which seems more reasonable. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Do you have a favorite running book or movie? I am kind of torn on this one. Probably Once a Runner, which I know is like everyone's favorite running book, but it's, it's really good. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. It's a good one. Yeah, Can't go wrong. Mm-hmm. Okay. Finally, what is your favorite post-run indulgence? Is it the burger or is it something else? Oh, yeah. It's all the food. Like I, I don't have any, I don't pick any um, or leave any food behind really. They're all my favorites. But I will say that when I get to my car that I always have the Lay's Wavy original chips and <laughs> I will eat mm-hmm. an entire family size bag on my way home. <laughs> so. Very specific. Wavy original. No shame in that. Yeah. I get sad when people don't have salty chips. So that one's like yeah. sufficiently salty. Yes. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Lays. Yeah. You're right. More than old Dutch. Yeah. Yeah. At Hard Rock, they had Pringles and it like Pringles did not cut it. Yeah. Sorry. Next, yeah. you got to put the chips in the burger next time. When we were growing up, that was called a humdinger, and then a burger or a sandwich without the chips is, was a hingdinger. So you got to try the the humdinger with the chips. I will. That sounds <laughs> amazing. That does sound really good. <laughs> all right, Joanna, this has been an awesome chat. We definitely enjoyed hearing all about your hard rock experience. And if anybody wanted to follow along with some of your adventures in the mountains or what's up next, where can they find you? Uh, probably Instagram is the best. So it's jford.welsh. Um, I'm also on Facebook, but I feel like Instagram has my heart these days. So... <laughs> That's probably a bit better. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Joanna. It's been great chatting with you. 